Would you please remain standing as I read this morning's scriptures from Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed at this time. There's programming down the hall for them, and we are thankful that you are here, and we want to welcome you today to the 9 o'clock service at Community Christian Church. Augustine wrote this about sin. Sin tends to make that which is cease to be. Sin isn't just merely human wickedness. Sin is not only immoral action. Sin is first and foremost a power. It is a parasitic force. And like all parasites, it needs a host. Guess who the host is? You and me. Somewhere about the 6th century, uh, Christians began to put this power of sin into definitive categories and they, the goal was not to give information, it was to do the work of physicians. It was to diagnose this spiritual problem that is killing us all. And seven cancers kind of kept coming to the surface and were identified and exposed and put into a catalog of the power of sin at work in us. And so these these. Things, these parasites, they latch onto our souls, they, they twist our desires, and they point us towards all kinds of things that seem like delights, but are instead filled with poison. And so you won't find this list in the Bible, uh, but you will find scriptures that deal extensively with each category on the list. And so uh, the, the pride, envy, sloth, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, these are all seven expressions of the power of sin at work in our world. These are seven ways that we assault ourselves every day, that we assault those around us every day, that we assault the, our world as a whole. And they've come, come to be known as the seven deadly sins. And the important thing today is to note this, they are deadly. They're parasites. If they gain a significant hold on our hearts, they just dig further and further in until all that once was beautiful about us ceases to be. And so the deadly sins describe how we normally think. They describe what we normally want and how we normally behave. They have become daily rhythms for us, but in them we also recognize that something is off, something's wrong. This is not how things are supposed to be. And so Jesus comes, and He provides an antidote to these poisons that we consume every day. He offers us a way to make that which is continue to be, not to cease to be, but to continue to be. And so we're looking into those antidotes that Jesus offers, and we're going to take one of these each week. And the hope is that we can turn the tables on our parasitic problems and that we can wreck the sin in our life before the sin in our life wrecks us. And so each week, we'll, re we'll explore just one of the seven, and the outline will probably be pretty similar with each one. We'll talk about what the 
particular manifestation of the force of sin is, why it wrecks us, and then how we can wreck it before it wrecks us. And so today, anger. Or if you're uh, old school or reading from a different translation, it could be wrath is what it's called. We, um, <laughs> every week somebody asks me for a password. I just got to say, I, I don't know how to turn it off on my iPad. So I shared it with you, whoever you are. You're welcome. Okay, very good. Uh, and so uh, anger, wrath. <laughs> we, we know it when we see it, right? We know what anger is. Uh, anger is a 27-year-old man at a bus stop, and he gets into a verbal exchange with a 59-year-old woman at the same bus stop. And who knows what the altercation is over. And she takes out her cell phone to call the police. And he punches her in the face. And then a 63-year-old man jumps in to rescue the woman. And he starts swinging at the 27-year-old man. And I guess the 27-year-old man's hand hurt. So he took what he had. It was a blue notebook. And he began to beat the 63-year-old older man with the notebook. And when the police arrived at the bus stop to sort everything out... They opened the man's blue notebook, and it was his homework from anger management class. He was on his way to another meeting, which he clearly needed, right? The police should have copied that report and stuck it in the man's notebook for the teacher to see. Uh, epic F, right? True story, that is. There's a researcher who did a lot of research on um, anger for decades, and he came out with a drug that showed a lot of promise, and so he took the drug to clinical trials, and that's where it kind of died, because he could not find enough people to participate in the study. We know anger when we see it, but too often we don't see it as a problem in ourselves, and even if we do see it in ourselves, we sure don't see it as something that we'd, we would ever need to take medicine for. And so we have to dig into anger. What's behind it? What causes our anger? And probably the most important thought today is this, um, that anger is always tied to what you love. Anger is always tied to what you love. People are angry in our culture right now. You've noticed this, right? There's racial unrest. Uh, why do people riot and loot? It's because they love equality and they don't feel like they're getting it. There's social unrest. Parents right now are furious at school board meetings. Why? Because they love their kids, and they don't think that the powers in charge are loving their kids in the right way. There is economic unrest. People right now in Lebanon are throwing rocks at their banks because they're locked up. They are enraged because they can't get their money. Why? Because they love freedom, and they feel like it's being chipped away from them. And to the degree that we love something, we will rally in anger to defend it. Some of you may have seen the Tennessee game last night. This is Tennessee fans throwing stuff on their own field because of a bad call. Just last night. Why do benches clear? Why does a teammate come to the defense of another teammate? Why, why does the whole team rush out on the field? It's because somebody on the other team wearing blue did something to my team wearing red, and we all got to go defend our friend 
wearing red, right? Anger is always tied to what you love. And so let's define anger this way today. Anger is energy that is released to defend and preserve something that we love. And if anger is tied to love, now we, it teaches us a few things. Let me give you a couple. Number one, if anger is tied to love, then anger is not always bad. There are countless scriptures where we could, we could turn to, um, where we could read, God gets angry, Jesus gets angry, and we also read that they're both perfect, but they get angry. We could make a significant case scripturally that there's never a time that God is not angry at sin. And when Jesus got angry, it was for the same reason. He was angry at sin. And then, add to that this, there are actually two places in Scripture, we Uh, One of them is the verse of the day, where Christians are commanded to be angry. Is that new for you? Have you heard that one? Ephesians 4.26 and Psalm 4.4 both say this, be angry and do not sin. Why is it okay for a holy, perfect God to be angry? And why is it okay for us to be angry and then for it to be presented in such a way that it is a real possibility for us to do without sinning? And there's one answer for both questions, and it is this, love, love. Anger is energy released to defend and preserve something we love. God can be angry. He made us. He loves us. He knows what's right and good for us. And when we don't choose that right and good, he comes to our defense in anger because he loves us. And the same for us. We were designed to love. We were built to love. And we will defend what we love. And that's useful. That's healthy anger. Be angry. Because here's the truth, if you're never angry at anything, it means that you love nothing. So we could say it this way, true love always gets angry. (laughs) There will be situations in your life and my life that if we fail to get angry, it will be a sin. Why? Because we are failing to love the things that we have been called to love. Let's take maybe your spouse or maybe your closest friend of the world and somebody abuses them with a baseball bat. What's your response supposed to be to them? It's not, what's the weather going to be on Tuesday? That's not the response. That's a failure to love what we've been called to love. There is great pain in our world and our anger alerts us to the fact that that pain needs fixed Anger should come for us when we see weak people exploited, when we see those that we love hurt, when we see the things that we value destroyed. The desire for justice is legitimate, and God is angry at sin, and He desires the elimination of evil in the world even more than we do. Sometimes, Christians attempt to put on a Christian face and they say this, oh, I never get angry. Be careful with that. Because if it's really true, then it means that you're still in preschool when it comes to love. 
So here's one crucial word that we need to add to that line. True love always gets angry slowly. Slowly. We find that idea all over Scripture, too. Exodus chapter 34, God is passing by the rock, and Moses is watching God, and he gets to see the after effects of God. And God says, I am a God and merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Proverbs 4, whoever is slow to anger. James 119, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why the emphasis on slow? Because there's good anger, and then there's anger that is deadly. Some anger is like a cancer that eats everything in its path. Some anger is healthy because it defends productively something that is worth defending. And so here's the difference. The cancerous kind of anger is typically quick. There's a very short fuse. Anger that is sin typically flares up in an instant. It's, It's inordinate anger that always leads to evil. And here's also what it leads to, regret. It always leads to regret. Different kind of anger, righteous anger, healthy anger, the kind of God uh, anger God has, the kind of anger that Jesus has is exactly the opposite. God never loses his temper, neither does Jesus, but they get really, really angry. Jesus sees people going away from God. Jesus sees people exploited and hurting, and he gets angry about that. What is he doing? He's defending righteousness. He's defending life. He's defending love, and anger helps him defend truth and justice and help people without destroying them. That's the difference. And so here's the the anger test for you and for me, how to tell whether your, your anger is godly, righteous anger or a selfish, cancerous, deadly sin kind of anger. We have to ask questions. Number one, is it quick? Did it flare up in an instant? And number two, is this going to lead me to regret what I've done? Is it going to, am I going to look back and say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that? Or is it slow? And does it lead to me being glad that I got angry? I'm glad I got angry because it, let me, it led me to do something that I never would have done otherwise. I was so scared to step up and speak out, but my anger helped me to do it. And so I'm thankful for my anger. Doesn't that sound weird? I packed it into a productive box and I used it to go after a problem, not a person. There's an important distinction. And it was a slow path rather than a tripped wire. So which is it? Is it quick with regret? Is it slow and good? And since anger is tied to what we love, here's another thing that we get to learn today. Why it wrecks us and why anger wrecks us so easily. Because anger is chained to what we love. Anger shows us what we love the most. 
That anger is tied to our love means that sometimes anger is useful when right is trampled on, when the image of God and people is trampled on, when justice is trampled on, when truth is trampled on, when God himself is trampled on. Those are some of the most important things in the world. And when they get trampled on, we get angry. And that's a useful anger because it pushes us towards the good things that we should do to correct those wrongs. But here's where it can turn dark. If anger is tied to what we love, then what if we're loving the wrong things? Or what if we're loving good things, but we're loving them more than we ought to love them, more than even God himself? Dante in his Purgatorio said this, that wrath is a love of justice perverted to revenge and spite. If our love is misplaced, then our anger gets perverted as well, and we begin to defend insignificant things at the expense and at the harm of other people. Stephen King has a a book called Needful Things that was made into a movie, and it depicts uh, the normal flow of life in a small main town. Uh, just any town America, just real small. And as like any other small town, you live in a small town, right? There's uh, bitterness and there's secret resentment and there's envy and scorn that's bubbling just below the surface in most people. It's not usually seen except maybe in some gossip here and there and maybe the occasional threat. But um, that was the same in this town until the devil moved in. And that's the story. In the story, the new, t- new character who is the devil, nobody knows he's the devil, but he moves into town and he begins to, he opens up a shop and he begins to sell people fantastic items that they've only ever dreamed of owning, a pair of Elvis's glasses, uh, a sliver of wood from Noah's Ark, or an autographed baseball card needed to complete a prize collection, or a very expensive uh, figurine. And when he sells these things to people, the devil does not want money. Instead, he asks his customers to do him very simple favors. He calls them pranks. He says, you know, Mrs. Jerzyk down the street, she just hung her laundry out. And if you want this thing from me, I just want you to go down and I want you to throw some mud on her nice, white, clean sheet. To somebody else, he says, you know the drunk that frequents the bar downtown? While he's inside, I want you to go slash his tires, and I'll give you this thing. You know the lady who bakes pies on the corner? It's a Stephen King movie. I want you to skin her dog. And the pranks are carried out, and the victims of these pranks immediately assume that their rivals and neighbors and even their friends are the ones who are responsible for these evil things. And so all the repressed issues that were bubbling just below the surface, they come out and within days there's violence that erupts everywhere across town. People march out against each other to, to defend their dignity. And as the book climaxes, the streets are literally filled with normal men and women who are out for justice with guns and swords hacking one another to bits. It's a Stephen King movie, okay? The devil, of course, is standing on the street corner with his hat cocked and a smile because when you get people fighting each other, it's easy to destroy them. 
And how does he get people to fight each other? Well, that's easy. He gave them what they loved the most. And he took from some what they loved the most. And everyone started defending what they loved the most. And they were misplaced. And they defended it to their own destruction. Tim Keller says this, anger is always a way that the things you love most chain you into their service. And so we can reverse engineer that today. If we just pay attention to what stirs up anger in us, then we'll know very quickly what we love. Some news comes to you. Even today, you're going to get angry, okay? Even today, some news is going to come, and maybe, maybe you're not bothered at all, okay? That means that you don't have a particular love for that thing or that issue or that person, but maybe you're bothered a little, Well, that tells you that you have some love for that thing. Maybe you're bothered a lot and your blood begins to boil. Guess what? You have lots of love for that thing. And the key to dealing with anger that we'll get to here is actually hidden here in a simple question. Here's another test that we can can take even today when we get anger uh, in our lives. We need to ask this question, what am I defending? And that will tell you what you love a little, it'll tell you what you love more, it'll tell you what you love most, it'll tell you what you love too much, and it'll tell you what you don't love at all. A broken world full of wickedness sometimes hurts us, and, and the sins of others, when they target our joy and our welfare and those we love, we rightly want things to be made right. And if we can temper our anger in the right way, then we can bring about good. But too often, our wrath is not concerned with restoration, but it's concerned with revenge. It's concerned with dominance. It's concerned with making the other person look bad. And that is always opposed to God's activities. Derailed anger, deadly anger is a sin because it wars against the community and the kingdom that God wants to build Because when you get people fighting each other, it's easy to destroy them. And so, how do we wreck anger before it wrecks us? Here's number one. Check yourself. Oh, go ahead and finish it. Thank you. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Uh, This series, by the way, will lend itself to that line over and over and over again. So, we're going to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. And... The first way we're going to do that is to remind ourselves that there's only one who, is, who has the right. Here's what I mean. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says this, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Think about what payback means in this verse. There's a drive in us when we get angry to pay somebody back for the wrong that they've done. And in order to feel justified to pay somebody back, It requires a certain belief, and here it is, that I have a high enough moral ground to be able to do so, to be able to pay somebody back. Angry people bent on revenge all have the same kind of self-talk. You've talked to yourself this way, I have. We say this, how dare they? They had no right. 
I can't believe they did. I would never say that. I would never do that. I would never act in that way. I would never do what they did. And what is that? It's an inner dialogue. It's a pep rally to ourselves that gives us permission to then go and inflict pain and retribution on them for doing wrong. What does the verse say? Only God occupies a high enough moral ground for that kind of path. Because only God knows a person's heart. Only God knows why they did what they did, said what they said. We don't know that. And so we say, well, I would never, and we use that as a justification to exact punishment. But in truth, God himself is the only one holy enough to ever be able to say, I would never do what they did. He's the only one that can say that. And so he's the only one with the real right to exact judgment. We don't have that right. You cannot stay angry at a person without convincing yourself that in some way you are superior to them. And a saved sinner simply has no ground to do that. If God really paid us back, for what we've done, where would we be? We need to remember that gospel truth when we're tempted to be angry. Here's the second thing that I want to leave you with today. Uh, we need to check ourselves and we need to, to chain ourselves. There's only one who absorbs wrath. I want to go back to that Tim Keller quote. He said this, anger is always a way that the things you love the most chain you into their service. If that's true, then we're going to be chained to something no matter what, because we were created to love, and we will defend what we love, and so anger will rise in us. And so the key has to be to make sure that we love well. How do we do that? Proverbs helps us. He says this, the writer, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, Give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. If you really want to defeat the diseased anger in your life, it doesn't rest in simply refraining from payback and revenge, but in positively loving and doing good to people who have wronged you. Paul tells us this as well in Romans chapter 12. He says, bless those who persecute you. Repay no one evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is a radical directive. It is hard to do. See, we congratulate ourselves for just getting to the point that we don't want to pay our enemies back. But God says, no, 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 you have one more step to take. Do good to them. And the writer of the proverb says that behavior like this will be burning coals on their head. Your kindness will rob them of their contempt. That's an interesting thought. Jesus expands on this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say you do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Let's go back to the first of that verse. It says, do not resist the one who is evil. It means this, don't react violently against them. Literally, it means don't knock them over. Somebody does something to you, don't knock them over. Why? Why should I not respond with anger? That leads to revenge. Jesus is saying because there's a far better way to address evil and violence without causing more evil and violence. It is this, to absorb the wrath and repurpose it for good. And Jesus gives us examples in this text of how we can do that. He talks about cheeks, and he talks about shirts, and he talks about miles. And I don't have time to go into each one of those, but can I just do one? Can I just do the shirts one? Jesus says, if somebody sues a really poor person and takes them to court and sues them for the only thing that they have, which is the shirt off their back, here's what that poor person should do. Literally, this is what Jesus is saying. That poor person should strip down naked and give him all their clothes. What? Imagine that in the courtroom. How would that go? The verdict comes down, you owe this man the t-shirt under your robe, and right there, the poor man strips not just his t-shirt, but all of his clothes, and holds them out for his oppressor. You think the cruel person suing this very poor person with nothing to his name, the really rich, cruel person in the corner, you think they're going to run over and get the clothes? No. And no one wants to look at that, right? (laughs) You are resisting the thought right now. And in Jesus' day, there was a hundred times more indignity to look on someone who was naked. And so what is happening with just this example? What is Jesus saying? In offering, in saying, offer all your clothes, the one being humiliated has turned the tables and has seized the power. And the person suing them only gets a pile of clothes and a lot of shame. And so the instruction here in all three examples, we could go through all three, is a nonviolent reaction to injustice that draws every eye in the place to the humanity of the one being oppressed. And it strips, at the very same time, it strips the oppressor completely of his power to humiliate. What is that? That's coals on the head. That's absorbing the wrath and the anger and repurposing it for good. And all of these examples are examples of the better way. It's not returning violence. It's not quick anger. But it's not pacifism either. It's not we're supposed to be a doormat. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's a slow anger. And it's channeled in the right way. And it's aggressive. And it's nonviolent. And it shames those whose intent it was to oppress and do evil. It's coals on the head. 
It's taking anger and absorbing it and repurposing it and using it for good. Now, what does that have to do with what we've been talking about? Here's what I need you to see. That all of these prescriptions by Jesus are overt actions of love for an enemy. They are slow anger responses. They are defending what is right in a way that opens the eyes of sinners to their sin rather than destroying them and doing violence to them. They are ways of loving well, and at the very same time, they remind a cruel oppressor of the humanity that they have lost a grip on because of the deadly sin of anger. And this this course, I have to tell you, it's not impossible to take. I want you to watch this. When Jesus was struck down, go back to the verse. When Jesus was struck down, what did he do? When he was beaten and flogged, did he turn the other cheek? Say yes. Say yes. Yes, thank you. And when Jesus was asked for his clothes, the soldiers actually gambled for them. Did he give them all of his clothes? Say yes. yes. And when Jesus was asked to carry a burden, did he just carry it or did he do more than that and climb up on it for the very people who were forcing him to carry it? Say yes. It looked like the powerful, the in charge, the authorities had humiliated him completely and left him to die, but Jesus absorbed that wrath. He used his anger. He repurposed it. It was a slow anger. He used it as fuel, not to harm, not to do violence, but to do harm to violence itself. Jesus pointed his anger and defeated a problem, not a person. He loved his enemies. He loved us. And his anger welled up to our defense when sin came in and wrecked the picture. And his anger chained him to us in love. His anger nailed him to a cross. What was that? It was an act of nonviolent retaliation that wrecked our sin without wrecking us. The cross is burning coals on the heads of sinners waking us up to our need for rescue. And there was at least one soldier that day who was bent on humiliation, taking part in that only minutes before, nailing Jesus' hands and feet to a cross, and watching him hang there, he became cognizant of the better way that Jesus was offering He realized that he was trying to humiliate Jesus, but in the end, he was the one humiliated. He says in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, he looks up the cross and he says this, truly, this man was the son of God. And that soldier, the oppressor, became the one who was opened to his sin because he realized love was staring at him 
from the cross. Love, loving well is the antidote for anger. And so God's love for us, along with the anger that naturally comes with love, led to our salvation. So whatever you love, you are chained to. Chain yourself today to God's love. And then this, be angry, but do not sin. The beauty is, if we're chained to God's love, we can follow that command, be angry, and we will not sin. Instead, we will lead others to Jesus. We will lead ourselves to the cross and to life. Father, I thank you for Jesus' anger on my behalf that led him to a cross. He was angry at the sin that had destroyed my life. And he used that anger to go to a cross to defeat sin without destroying me. Thank you for that today. Would you help me to love well so that my anger is productive and leads to life instead of death? It's in Jesus' name we pray. We all pray this same prayer together. And everybody said, 